Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, cardio nerds. It's Amit and Dan. Thanks for joining us as we tour fellowship programs across the country. As part of the Cardio Nerds Case Report series, produced in collaboration with the American College of Cardiology Fellows and Training section, each episode will feature a cardiology fellowship program. Fellows from that program will present and teach about a fascinating case and share what makes their hearts flutter about their program. Each case discussion is followed by an eCPR segment from a content expert and a message from their program director. Before we dive in, just remember, we are an independent educational platform. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The case you're about to hear is 100% HIPAA compliant. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio Nerds. Our mission is simple, to democratize cardiovascular education, promote diversity and inclusion, empower everyone to learn and teach from the basics to the advanced while fostering wellness and humanity. If you believe in the mission, consider supporting us on patreon.com forward slash cardio nerds. Every little bit goes a long way. We're also excited to grow the platform by mentoring the next generation of cardio nerds. We are establishing the cardio nerds Academy and are looking for residents and fellows to join as cardio nerds fellows. Please see the link in the episode description to submit an application. And now without further ado, let's continue on our tour with another fascinating case from amazing cardio nerds colleagues. Cardio Nerds, welcome back to another fabulous case discussion as part of our CNCR series. We are so privileged and honored to be joined by fellows and colleagues from the UCLA Cardiology Fellowship Training Program. We're so thrilled to be joined by Drs. Hilary Shapiro, Ruth Shao, and Jay Patel. Guys, welcome to the show. So excited to have you here. Really excited about today's case. Would you mind introducing yourselves? Hey, everyone. My name is Jay Patel. I'm a PGY-5 Cardiology Fellow at the University of California, Los Angeles. I was born and raised in Chicago and did most of my schooling there before moving to the Bay Area for residency. I'm so excited to be doing my fellowship now here in sunny Southern California. When not at work, you previously would have found my wife and I spending time on one of our many hiking trails here in Southern California or waiting in line for some delicious street tacos. But more recently, you'll find us sitting at home training our new puppy, a beautiful Bernadoodle named Momo. Hey guys, thank you so much for having us on Cardio Nerds. We're really excited to be here. I'm Hilary Shapiro. I'm one of the final year cardiology fellows at UCLA and one of our current chiefs along with Ruth. I'm interested in advanced heart failure, cardiac transplant, and mechanical support. Outside of work, I love to go to the beach or go hiking in Malibu or explore the restaurants in LA. And you know, even though we're in California, I also love to ski. So in the winter, I'm up in the Sierra Nevada mountains getting in as much snow time as I can. Hi, everyone. It's such a pleasure to be here as well. I'm Ruth. I'm one of the third-year cardiology fellows at UCLA. I'm interested in general cardiology with a focus on women's cardiovascular health. And in my free time, I'm kept very busy with my rambunctious and very opinionated toddler who I've successfully trained to know the heart makes two sounds. Wow. Ruth, Jay, Hillary, what a treat, a treat, treat, treat to have you join us. And I have a special shout out from Jeff Sue, who has just been a great Cardio Nerd supporter from the very inception. Definitely gave us great feedback along the way. And he sends his love to you guys. We love California. We're trying to be fair to all the states, but we do love the sun. We do love the beach. We do love the sand. And guys, Take us to your favorite place where I think as Ahmed and the cool kids call it, your favorite chill sesh. 
or your favorite place to chill sesh? I don't know if we use that phrase out here, but yeah, there are a lot of great spots to choose in LA. As you probably know, the weather is awesome year round. So I think most of us are outside on any day off, but you know, when we were talking about a place to take you guys, we actually had a hard time because there's so many awesome restaurants in LA. There's tons of good cuisine um, and the museum and culture offerings are also amazing. And Ruth, I bet that your daughter loves that Disneyland is just 30 minutes away. Actually, I love that Disneyland is just 30 minutes away. Pull the Disney card out. <laughs> yeah, we're pulling out the big punches. So, you know, but let's be honest, when people think about LA, I'm pretty sure everyone thinks about palm trees and surfing. And we Googled some stats and found out we have 75 miles of beaches to choose from, from LA. It's so so we thought the best thing to do would be to head to the beach in Santa Monica and set up a bonfire and social distance, watch sunset, and then roast some marshmallows and talk about this case. Guys, I just have to say, I'm hoping this goes really well because I'd love to make friends and actually visit you guys and actually go to the beach and, <laughs> and take Momo for a walk. It was Momo, right, Jay? Yeah. Momo is really cute. Momo, yeah. Well, this is awesome. I, I love this place. We're so happy here. We want to stay here forever. But let's do what we love doing when we're having a chill sesh, as some say, uh, and talk about some cardiology. Wait, wait, before we jump in, a little bit of a quick disclaimer. I recently went camping by a campfire. We were doing marshmallows, and then I touched the spit like where the marshmallows was, thinking that it would be not hot. I don't know why. Anyway, it hurt <laughs> my fingers. So let's not do that while we do this, even though we're going to be very engaged. And uh, yes, it did get in the way of twerking that coronary catheter into the right for a day or two, but I'm, I'm, <laughs> let's start this case. Let's start this case. <laughs> All right, so let's jump into it. Our patient is a 49-year-old, healthy, non-smoking woman with no family history of heart disease who presented to one of our satellite community hospitals reporting intermittent chest pain for one day. She said the pain started while eating a meal, but then progressed to constant pain for 30 minutes, which is when she decided to come to the emergency room. In the emergency room, her EKG showed anteroceptal and lateral ST elevations with reciprocal inferior ST depressions, and the ER team called cardiology because they were worried about ACS caused by acute plaque rupture. Wow, Jay, only 49 years old and she has no risk factors for heart disease? That one-liner can really help set your framework for what to include in your differential diagnosis. I mean, the average age for first MIs in the United States is 65 for men, 72 for women. But as we all know, the age range can be quite wide. And even though she doesn't have any cardiac risk factors such as hypertension, smoking, diabetes, dyslipidemia, it doesn't mean that atherosclerotic disease is off the table for her. In fact, studies have shown that almost 20% of ACS patients younger than the age of 50 years old presenting with type 1 myocardial infarction have no traditional risk factors, and more and more patients with no traditional risk factors are actually presenting to the hospital with STEMIs. While I agree with the concern for plaque rupture with you and the emergency department, in the back of my mind, I'm wondering if something else is going on. Yeah, that's a good point, Ruth. You know, if we even take a step back further to her chief complaint, which was just intermittent chest pain while eating in a, a young, low-risk woman, without knowing what the ER saw on her EKG, my first thought actually may not be acute coronary syndrome. The differential for chest pain is really broad, and some other dangerous things I hope they ruled out was we want to make sure we don't miss an aortic dissection, an esophageal rupture, or some sort of pulmonary embolism. Also, with the association of pain to her meal, her symptoms could have also been chalked up to GI issues if the ER hadn't gotten an ECG. 
So it's a really important point because a majority of women with ACS do complain of chest pain. Non-cardiac symptoms are way more common in women than men. So you'll also see a lot of female patients who are having a STEMI or an NSTEMI that come in complaining of things like fatigue, dyspnea, nausea, or neck pain, and they may never have any chest pain, even if their ECG and angiography are a slam dunk for a heart attack. Something else that's worrying me is that women are more likely to attribute their symptoms to non-cardiac issues. So they may think that they're having a GI problem instead of a heart problem and delay coming into the ER at all. And finally, if they do actually go to the ER or their primary care doctor's office with complaint of these symptoms, studies show that actually the providers are also less likely to immediately think about ACS. And women are less likely to get an EKG and troponin check when they go into the medical office. So their access to prompt care and a correct diagnosis can be even more delayed. So, you know, it's really important to have a high suspicion for ACS in women. And Dr. Carol Watson, our awesome program director and director of the Women's Heart Center at UCLA, says that if a female patient reports any exertional symptoms, anywhere between her nose and her navel, you should always think about a cardiac issue. So I'm really glad that our patient went into the ER and I'm so glad that our community hospital checked that EKG so quickly. I was just going to say that I barely settled into my beach chair and you guys hit us with a ST elevation MI. <laughs> so much for a chill set, but this is, this is exactly our speed, our pace, and we love it. And I just, you know, I think this is a, such a common presentation. Even if we didn't have frank ST elevations, you know, it sort of makes our job easier because we know what to do in that moment. But there are so many presentations where the EKG isn't as profound and people present in different ways. And so I, I'm just glad that you're contextualizing the symptoms within the framework of who our patient is, you know, in terms of both her age and her gender because these are really important considerations. We've gotten into a few times in the podcast before, like with Dr. Cho, Dr. Gulati, and Dr. Wenger. And so this is a, a great start. And thanks for setting the stage for contextualizing the presentation in the framework of the patient and who our host is. Yeah. And I'll just add, you know, Amit and I actually have a mentor who is one of our GIM faculty in residency, who's quite a senior professor at this point. And she went into an emergency room with chest pain. And she just tells the story of how she was totally not taken as seriously as she would have. And an ECG wasn't even done. She didn't tell us where this was, but an ECG wasn't obtained rapidly. And then her husband like added about like 30 minutes after she was already triaged that she was a physician. And all of a sudden it's like run to arms, let's get everything done. It was like, oh, you're one of ours type of things and uh, got, you know, got an ECG. But the thing is, you can't see a STEMI until you do an ECG, right? Until you look like, for it. Yeah. Until you look yeah. for it. So, mm-hmm. you know. And she did well and everything ended up being great, but that's the actual issue, right? You can't use your eyeball test and your preconceived notions sometimes. Yeah, that's absolutely correct, Dan. And I think sometimes we also neglect realizing that the risk factors for cardiovascular disease is different in women as well. So since we're talking about cardiac issues in female patients, something else that we should mention is the different risk factors for atherosclerosis in women compared to men, because there are some extra ones that you should be asking your female patients about. For example, diabetes, smoking, and actually a maternal history of premature coronary artery disease all increases the risk of cardiovascular events in women compared to men. We also know that a history of depression, trauma, or just general mental stress are also strong, non-traditional risk factors for coronary artery disease in women. An emerging area of research is actually looking at the gender differences in gut microbiomes and seeing how that plays into the development of CAD. And when it comes to hormonal effects, the balance of hormones with premenopause is actually considered protective against the development of coronary artery disease. 
but things change once you're in the menopause or postmenopausal phase where you have the estrogen withdrawal that women experience. And that actually puts women at an increased and accelerated age-related risk for cardiovascular disease. So there's been studies that looked at hormone replacement therapy and seeing if that mitigates some of the high-risk features that we're seeing in these menopausal and postmenopausal women. But the randomized control trials didn't find a benefit for HRT in preventing primary or secondary cardiovascular disease and actually had signs of potential harm. So currently, hormone replacement therapy isn't recommended. And finally, I think it's always important to take a moment to ask about the obstetrics history if she had children, because studies have shown that even temporary things like gestational diabetes or hypertensive disorders that revolve around just the pregnancy state have been associated with an increased risk of future MIs, heart failure, strokes. So that was quite a detour, but I think it was an important one. Let's go back to our main question again, which was the concern for acute plaque rupture. And in the back of my mind, there's the concern for the acute plaque rupture, but I'm also wondering if there's something else going on. Yeah, I think that's an excellent detour, Ruth. And I love that, you know, you're asking great questions. I agree that, you know, first and foremost, most acutely, we need to rule out an acute plaque rupture. But even if we think the patient's having a cardiac issue rather than a GI issue or something else, we should also think about her other cardiac causes of chest pain. When I hear about her ECG with ST segment elevations and the interoceptoral and lateral leads, I'm definitely thinking about an anterior MI and I'm worried about a plaque rupture in the left anterior descending artery or the left main artery. But as we know, there are other cardiac issues that can cause similar EKG changes. Other things I'm thinking about for her would include spontaneous coronary artery dissection or SCAD, coronary artery embolism, a coronary artery vasospasm or Takotsubo or stress cardiomyopathy. And, you know, we are in COVID, so you got to think about myocarditis and pericarditis as well. The awesome thing I think about cardiology is that when there's a question about what exactly is going on with the patient's coronaries, we can take them to the cath lab and do an angiography and take a look. So I hope we took our patient to the cath lab next. Yeah, Jay, what happened next? I'm anxiously waiting. Yeah, don't worry, Hillary, Ruth, Dan, Ahmed, and all you cardio nerds. The STEMI pager was definitely activated. The patient was loaded with aspirin and ticagrelor before being taken straight up to the cath lab. While every cath lab is a little bit different, our strategy here was to first image what we assumed, based on the EKGs, was a non-culprit vessel, as we anticipated the culprit vessel was critically, if not totally occluded, and would take up the majority of the case. By first looking at the non-culprit vessel, we can get an idea of what the coronary supply is to the rest of the heart, and then we go up with a guide catheter for our culprit vessel. Now, if the patient had been unstable, or if engaging the non-culprit vessel took longer than, let's say, a few minutes, we would go straight for the presumed culprit vessel. Time is myocardium, as they say. That's great, Jay. Yeah, this is an almost an interesting experience in Takotsubo cardiomyopathy, which classically looks like ACS on EKG, but has totally normal coronary arteries on angiography. You're totally right, Hillary. Jay, Hillary, and Ruth, this is a crazy case, and I'm really excited to hear about the angios. But just to clarify for the audience, in case you're not aware, remember that the ECG not only diagnoses STEMI, but it actually helps us localize the STEMI. And so what we talked about earlier, you know, the ST elevations in the anterior leads with uh, reciprocal ST depressions in the inferior leads really points to a proximal LAD or proximal left main situation rather than, let's say, a right coronary artery or a circumflex situation. And basically, when we approach the ECG, it's kind of crazy. Like, cardiac hasn't done like an ACS series yet, which uh, <laughs> I find crazy. But that's what we're doing. When we have a patient with chest pain, we are looking at that ECG hungrily, trying to figure out what's going on. And when we sniff out ischemia, we're trying to actually localize it like a neurologist would with a focal abnormality. 
Anyways, but then just to expand on what Jay said, a lot of practitioners, what they'll do is let's say they've identified that it's a left-sided problem, say LAD or a left circumflex. They'll just go and quickly look at the right coronary artery first before they proceed with looking at the actual problem because they want to just make sure they know what's going on on the right side before they intervene on the culprit lesion that they think that it's going to be. And most of the time, the ECG does point to the right direction. So that's just what Jay is doing. Yeah, you're totally right, Dan. And that's actually one of the reasons I love the cath lab is, you know, until you get that first image on the screen, you can have guesses about where you're going to see, but you're never really sure. And also, as you mentioned, you can do diagnostic and treatment at the same time with the same procedure. So Jay, tell us, what did you find when you took the patient to the table of truth? The table of truth. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So here we go. In the cath lab, the opening shot was the non-culprit right coronary artery, which was a large dominant vessel with no disease. So that was reassuring. Next, we switched catheters to engage the left coronary system. In the opening shot, after the cath team injected the contrast, they immediately saw that there was a problem. The cath images are up on the CardioNurse website, and I definitely encourage you all to check them out, but I can describe them to you here now. The left coronary system usually has a left main artery that bifurcates into a big healthy left anterior descending artery and a left circumflex artery, and sometimes there's a ramus intermediate artery in between the two. In our patient, the left main artery looked like a really long, skinny sliver of a vessel with additional small area of contrast filling into what looked like a false lumen. After that, we looked for branches off the left main. A nice left circumflex artery was visualized, but unfortunately there was no left anterior descending artery visualized at all. Wow, the description, Jay, you gave of the left main appearance and the lack of appearance of the LAD is very concerning. When we talk about plaque rupture and what it looks like on angiography, typically we say that the artery appears abruptly occluded or ulcerated with contrast staining, not a long, skinny sliver of a vessel with loss of distal branches and then contrast filling into a possible false lumen, like you said. With this angiographic appearance paired with her acute presentation, her female gender, middle age, and basically no traditional risk factors, I'm now less concerned about a classic plaque rupture, but I'm really concerned about her having SCAD or spontaneous coronary artery dissection. And this would actually fit well with SCAD because it's much more common in younger women with 80 to 90% of SCAD cases occurring between ages late 40s to early 50s. And our patient, she's 49 and she fits perfectly within this demographic. The prevalence, though, is really low. It's about 4%, but it's thought to be the underlying cause of up to 35% of all ACS cases in women 50 years or younger. And the true prevalence is probably underrepresented in registry studies because it's hard to get an accurate diagnosis and there's recruitment methodology issues and things like that. So in terms of why SCAD develops, no one really knows why, but there's two leading theories that we should be aware of. One is the inside out and The second one is the outside-in theory. The inside one is where blood enters into the subintimal space from the true lumen and creates a dissection flap. The outside-in is when a hematoma develops de novo, and this disrupts the traversing microvessels and causes a dissection. So in both cases, you have separation of the layers of the coronary artery, similar to when we think of when we hear about aortic dissection. The majority of SCAD is thought to be from this outside-in hypothesis because when they look with imaging, there's not really a communication between the true and the false lumen. 
Yeah, absolutely, Ruth. You know, just taking a couple more minutes to talk about the angiographic appearances of SCAD, the most common thing we see is what we call a diffuse stenosis without any abrupt changes in the caliber of the artery. This is called type 2 SCAD. In our case, however, I think this looks more like a type 1 angiographic appearance, which is seen only in about 30% of SCAD cases, where you get a really long filling defect from the intimal dissection flap, and then there's a little pocket of extraluminal contrast causing a downward spiral dissection. In our case, you know, looking at those pictures, it seems like the dissection starts at the distal left main is where that contrast staining is. You know, and reassuringly, she did have a healthy left circumflex artery and a healthy RCA. But this is not the case that you ever want to get in the middle of the night. It's really rare. The prevalence of SCAD is already very low. And the prevalence of SCAD involving the left main is even lower. So it's even like less than 1% of all SCAD cases. I just have to say, one, this has been just awesome discussion and we're hitting so many of the main points and, and critical pearls related to SCAD. But I'd like to just speak directly to our audience first. So to our audience, whatever you're doing right now, whether it's exercising or driving the car or sitting on your desk taking notes, you just have to like pause the discussion right now and go to the blog post and take a look at these images because this is the most impressive angiogram I have ever seen. I show this to multiple people at work yesterday, faculty who've been working forever. And this is just a, such an impressive image. You have to look at it. I almost started choking on my bonfire s'mores. It is that impressive. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> and also drive safely. Do not look at this while you're driving. <laughs> Unless you could safely pull no, over. No, except do not just pull over. Yeah. Yeah, you, definitely you pull just over stop first. what you're doing. <laughs> if you're on well, a highway, I mean, yeah, you, know, don't you, have stop. To, you have to pull over. I mean, listen, our fans are very intelligent people. They know. They know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Disclaimer for the lawyers. You please pull over first safely. <laughs> All right. And also, I got to just add, you have to see these pictures. Yeah, I totally agreeing with Amit. These are just uh, really, really, really impressive pictures, but also bringing it back to the patient. Really, really critical pictures to see, to recognize, and to learn from. So, and whoever was in the cath lab at this time, I commend them for just whatever's going to happen next. I'm, I'm sure whatever's going to happen next was was uh, really, really challenging. And when you're confronted with an image like this, the sympathetics get revved up by all, I'm sure. And the, the other thing that I'll point out from this particular image, if you look at it, as Jay so eloquently said, well, first of all, you could see some dye staining in the left main. You'd see that. And second of all, the LAD is flush occluded, which means that there's like no flow in the LAD. And so for intro to cath, you know, it's very helpful to actually first learn how to identify the walls of the heart when you're learning cath. And this isn't a cath talk at all. So I won't go into how you do that. But if you learn the walls, then you're going to learn what arteries go to those walls. And then you're going to be able to see, oh, wow, there's an entire artery that's missing here. Normally, when you see, let's say, an LED and all of a sudden there's an abrupt stop, an abrupt occlusion, my 12-year-old and my nine-year-old can pick out the lesions. But when it's totally flush occluded, they can't. And that's because your eyes are drawn to an occlusion. But if you have a flush occlusion where the artery never starts to begin with, it can be very, very challenging. So you really want to learn the walls, then the arteries that go to those walls of the heart. And, you know, this has been such an incredible didactic, but like with the patient, I'm really curious what the next steps are because the conventional teaching is if you see dissection like that, you probably don't want to shoot more contrast because the pressure of the contrast going in itself, the injection can cause more trauma and injury and cause further dissection propagation. And then secondly, you know, we've got a, a critical left main stenosis from this either dissection flap or the outside end hematoma that's encircling the true lumen and the LED is gone. So, you know, I'd love to know right now, what are the hemodynamics and how do we support this patient so that way we can figure out what to do moving forward? 
Yeah, Amin, Dan, that's a perfect segue into what I was going to say next. You know, the interventional team definitely was in a battle at this point. You know, this is cases in the middle of the night. They shoot this diagnostic angiogram, not wanting to do harm on the patient. Unfortunately, even with just contrast injection for the diagnostic, the patient went downhill quickly. She had cardiac arrest and she went into ventricular fibrillation shortly after this diagnostic angiogram. The team was able to defibrillate her quickly with just one shock and they gave her intravenous amiodarone for stabilization. And then Pella-CP was placed for additional left ventricular support. Higher level mechanical support like ECMO and emergent cardiac surgery were not readily available at this hospital overnight. Given the patient's hemodynamic and electrical instability, the cath lab team felt that her LV was suffering enough from poor oxygen delivery and decided to attempt revascularization by opening up the occluded artery. Man, this poor lady, you know, we were just talking about it, but treating SCAD and trying to revascularize SCAD is just terrifying. You guys are absolutely right. SCAD is what I would say a catch-22. You risk propagating the dissection if you try to fix it with coronary stenting and percutaneous interventions. But when there's no flow and the patient is hemodynamically decompensating quickly, your hands are tied and you have to try something. So I think it really depends on how the patient presents and what the vessels are involved And by far and away, the most common strategy, just like Amit had alluded to earlier, is conservative management. That is no revascularization whatsoever. Over 95% of patients who were treated conservatively had angiographic healing of the lesions on repeat angiogram four to six weeks later. But even if you do choose a conservative treatment strategy, you need to monitor the patients in the hospital for several days in case the clinical course takes a turn for the worse. And urgent bypass surgery, if possible, is the preferred method of revascularization in clinically stable patients with extensive or high-risk dissection. If the patient is clinically unstable, such as in our lady, then attempting percutaneous coronary interventions is reasonable. Yeah, you know, I think that sometimes management of these high-risk cases also depends on the resources available at the hospital you're at. I know we'll probably talk about this a little bit later, but I know in our main academic hospital, we're lucky to have ECMO and CT surgery available 24-7. But at our satellite centers or wherever we are, absolutely, you do whatever you can for the patient. Ruth, when you say a conservative management strategy, you meant giving the patient antiplatelet therapy and beta blockers and heparin, right? To minimize myocardial workload, maintain patency of the true coronary lumen and treat these associated thrombotic lesions, right? You're absolutely correct, Hillary. In addition, the use of thrombolysis is generally not recommended because extension of dissection or hematoma have been reported with thrombolytic use in SCAD patients. So, In addition to all the conservative therapies that you try, what else did you guys do for this patient, Jay? So once a wire was passed into the Ramus Intermedius branch, which I forgot to mention existed before, intravascular ultrasound was used to confirm, visualize a large dissection flap in the left main coronary artery with a significant amount of intramural hematoma. This is also a really impressive video clip that can be seen on the CardioNerds website. Another plug for UCLA is that Dr. Jonathan Tobis one of our interventional cardiologists who performs complex PCI, PFO closures, alcohol septal ablations, balloon mitral valvuloplasties, was also one of the pioneers for intravascular ultrasound. He's a wealth of knowledge and a resource and always accessible and present in our teaching conferences and interventional internal club sessions. Going back to the case, attempts at wiring the LAD were successful only to the mid-portion, after which multiple wires were tried but all were unable to pass down to the distal LED. This did open up one large septal branch. 
Because the ramus intermedius wire was confirmed with IVIS to be in the true lumen, the left main stent was delivered on this wire. However, after stent expansion, there was no additional improvement in the flow through the LAD. Additionally, the left circumflex artery, which was previously nicely open and patent, now closed, likely as a result of dissection flap propagation. We're now four hours into the case in the middle of the night, and the team was reaching its contrast and fluoroscopy limit. So the decision was made to cease further attempts at revascularization. I see what you mean, Ruth, with SCAD being a catch-22. The percutaneous intervention strategy for dissections is really difficult, and I really commend our satellite hospital's interventional team for doing the best they could for this really sick lady. You know, getting into the true lumen of the dissected artery is the most important step, but it can be really challenging. And interventionalists who perform chronic total occlusion interventions utilize a strategy of actually creating dissection planes to bypass a chronically occluded area when a wire won't pass through it. But in situations like this, wiring and stenting into an existing dissection plane through a false lumen could compromise all of the branching vessels as well, which could just be disastrous. Intravascular imaging, such as IVIS or OCT, can help us confirm that the wire we placed is actually in the right position, so in the true lumen rather than in the false lumen. But this is also not really an easy task to perform because those imaging strategies need a wire as well, and putting that imaging wire down to do the imaging can propagate the dissection as well. As you guys can tell, this was not a straightforward case, and it seems kind of heavy for a beach bonfire. How is the patient's heart function doing through all of this, Jay? This is exactly how we do our beach bonfires. <laughs> it's heavy stuff in LA. Yeah. yeah, the SCAD, the occluded LED, and the arrhythmic arrest really negatively affected her cardiac function. Her post-procedure transthoracic echocardiogram showed left ventricular ejection fraction of 22% with apical akinesis and anterior and anterolateral hypokinesis, which is all of the myocardial territory we'd expect to have problems with what we saw on our angiogram there was no significant valvular disease. Wow, Jay. So how did UCLA Ronald Reagan, our main academic referral hospital, get involved? Unfortunately, the patient continued to deteriorate clinically. She was sent up to the ICU on maximum impella support, and the team hoped she would cool off and stabilize. However, impella flows could not be weaned, indicating that her heart wasn't strong enough to circulate blood on its own. And then she had developed acute renal and liver failure, probably from her low cardiac output. A little while later, she went into ventricular fibrillation two more times. Basically, her heart was failing, and it was causing all of her other organs to start shutting down as well. Fortunately, they were able to contact Ronald Reagan UCLA expeditiously and get her over here for higher level of care. You know, Jay, that's something I love about UCLA. Our network is huge, and we have hospitals and clinics all over Southern California. I think we span like a 100-mile radius from our big academic center, so we're really able to help a lot of people, and we get to see some of the most complex cases in Southern California. I think right now UCLA Health is providing care all the way from San Luis Obispo to northern San Diego County, so spanning much of the 75 miles of beachfront. The other great thing about this is that there's lots of clinical and academic job opportunities for our fellows after graduation for those who want to stay within the UCLA Health System. So going back to our case now that the patient is back in the mothership at Ronald Reagan, what happened? That's right, Ruth. And one of the perks of virtual conferences is that our satellite attendings are able to participate in conferences. And some are giving us talks too, widening our exposure to more community-based cardiology and not just academic cardiology. 
Anyways, Ronald Reagan UCLA was contacted for higher level of care, as I mentioned. Because her heart function was so poor, our mobile ECMO team went to the outside hospital, cannulated her, and placed her on VA ECMO prior to transfer back to the mothership. Oh, I love our mobile ECMO team. Such an awesome innovation that we've had at UCLA for the past few years, and they really do have the most high-tech ambulance truck I've ever seen. The ECMO team is spearheaded by one of our CT surgeons, and it has saved a lot of lives in the greater Southern California area. We're actually able to go and pick up patients at other hospitals who need ECMO or who are already on ECMO, and we can bring them back to UCLA where we have this awesome 24-7 ECMO team that's huge. So we have CT surgeons, heart failure cardiologists, anesthesiologists, perfusion specialists, respiratory therapists, and ICU nurses who are all trained in ECMO care and can take care of these patients. I have to say that I'm so impressed by the ability to offer a mobile ECMO service. Yeah. I mean, it's just such a tremendous care to be able to provide. They look like like the Ghostbusters. You know, they come in with these like huge yeah. backpacks on and come like running into our other hospitals and like scoop these patients <laughs> up. <laughs> yeah. Who are you going to call? Yeah, exactly. The ECMO UCLA team. The LA mobile ECMO team. <laughs> But uh, no, but as we all know that there are, there are ways to support the heart, right? And we can support and take over for the cardiopulmonary system. Really, the, a lot of the morbidity and mortality comes from the end organ injury. And so, yes, time is heart, but also time is kidney, time is brain, time is liver, time is gut, time is, you know, your vascular tone. Uh, and so if we can sort of uh, minimize the time until we get these end organ injury and this common sort of uh, systemic inflammatory response where you lose your vascular tone, I imagine that the outcomes would be better with all this. It's very, very impressive. Yeah, and I'll add it like really speaks to a system. This is a, what you're describing here is just an incredible system where everybody is so important as part of the system. You know, the people on the ground that have that obviously this case was pretty profound and you recognize shock and it's pretty acute. But like, you know, shock could sometimes be challenging to recognize. And as Ahmed said, time is organs, time is everything, time is life. And so you could have the biggest system involved, but it really speaks to the network that you have set up over there with the ability to mobilize and then have these you know, multidisciplinary discussions on the go to develop this. It's just very impressive and incredible. Yeah, no, you're, you're totally right. UCLA Health has a big footprint kind of all over Southern California, like Ruth said. And it's a really great sort of collaboration where a lot of our UCLA interventionalists um, and just UCLA cardiologists work in these community hospitals. They also rotate at Ronald Reagan, our main hospital, you know, some of the time so that we all know each other really well. So if anything happens, you know, everyone's really well trained, but if anything happens or someone's worried about a patient, it's just one phone call. Someone always picks up and we can really help people. And, you know, we've brought people over for ECMO watch just because they look unstable and they might need ECMO. But sometimes I was talking about those big backpacks. The ECMO team will actually bring all of their ECMO equipment to the patient wherever they are. I think they've even started on the sidewalk outside of a hospital and they can cannulate the patient at wherever the patient is, stabilize them, get them into this giant ECMO truck, and then transfer them back to UCLA to kind of get tuned up and figure out what else to do. So it, it's awesome. And it's been a great learning experience for all of us. Hillary, yes, that's pretty much exactly what happened to our patient. She was admitted to the cardiothoracic ICU at Ronald Reagan after being placed on VA ECMO at the outside hospital. She was intubated, sedated, and started on CRT to help her failing kidneys. Cardiac surgery didn't think she'd be a great candidate to take to the OR, unfortunately. Oh, I see. Cabbage or coronary artery bypass grafting, which is usually reserved for SCAD patients who have PCI that's failed or situations that are considered extremely high risk, such as left main dissections with ongoing ischemia like an R patient, can actually be quite risky to perform, especially due to technical concerns with suturing the fragile dissected coronary artery tissue. 
Because of the spiral dissection down the patient's LAD, I can't really see a clear target for a graft in the distal LAD looking at the images, which you can find on the CardioNerds website. Plus, she already had a left main stent that required antiplatelet therapy. Are those some of the reasons that cardiac surgery didn't think she was a good candidate for bypass, Jay? You're absolutely correct, Ruth. Additionally, the patient had already significant myocardial ischemia and probably infarction from her LAD being essentially closed for over 24 hours, and she was still requiring maximum mechanical support with ECMO and Impella. So the possibility of the patient requiring a heart transplant was in the back of our minds. With the lack of target for bypass surgery at her still critical state, the decision was made to proceed with another attempt for a percutaneous intervention to try to restore some flow to the LAD myocardium to stabilize her, wean mechanical circulatory support as much as possible, and start an expedited heart transplant evaluation. She was taken back to the cath lab the day after transfer to see if there was anything else to be done to help restore blood flow to the LAD territory myocardium. Our cath team at UCLA was able to wire down to the distal LAD. Intravascular ultrasound showed wire coursing in the true lumen proximally. Then the wire entered the dissection plane in the mid-LAD, and then distally the wire re-entered into the true lumen. Because the wire distally entered back into the true lumen, three stents were placed across the length of the LAD from distal to proximal to try and help restore LAD blood flow. You may be wondering what the risk is with stenting a portion of the false lumen. In this case, the wire traversed through the dissection plane, but luckily re-entered the true lumen distally. So they were able to connect the proximal true lumen to the distal true lumen with the three stents placed. Her post-intervention angiogram showed improvement in her LAD flow, and her septal and diagonal branches reappeared. She returned to the cardiothoracic ICU in slightly better condition and was successfully extubated the following day. That's awesome. Jay, it's incredible that they were able to do such a great job on such a complicated vessel and salvage flow to the distal vessel. Just a quick question, actually, when, you know, when they essentially go into the false lumen, re-enter and stent it open, do you risk losing the side branches that come from the portion of the vessel in which you're traversing the false lumen? I think that is a risk. And, you know, with this patient being as high risk as she was, the team, both the inpatient cardiothoracic ICU team, as well as the cath team, were just trying to salvage whatever myocardium they could at this point, while already having an expedited transplant evaluation being done on the back burner. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, you know, even if they sacrifice a a small branch, I mean, they're really recovering flow to as much of the mass as they can. Really awesome. Phenomenal. So after the cath, the patient went back upstairs to the ICU. She was actually decannulated from ECMO five days post-procedure, and the impella was removed seven days post-procedure. However, the patient continued to require significant inotropic support, and repeat studies show that the LV ejection fraction didn't really improve, and her kidney function also didn't improve. So even though blood flow was restored to some of her heart tissue with the second angiogram, the team thought that a lot of permanent damage had already occurred and that her renal and cardiac function probably would never recover. Therefore, our cardiomyopathy and renal transplant teams, who were already following her from the start of her admission, decided to conduct and complete an expedited evaluation for heart and kidney transplant for which she went a successful dual heart kidney transplant just 28 days after a transfer to UCLA. That is incredible. Got major goosebump action, even though the fire's hot and I'm sweating. <laughs> like a paradoxical. It's goosebumps uh, reverses and, and paradoxes. But um, 
what I would just looking at the situation. We talked about, did, you speak a, did you speak a reference to annulus reverses for constriction? It's a Dan criteria, okay? Echo is following me everywhere. Um, oh no! I, okay, but uh, what I was, what I was like, what I find totally remarkable here is, you know, we said time is life, and that's really true. And and Ahmed pointed out that the organs, you know, they suffer right away. And here you have basically, okay, so we understand why the heart can't come back. You know, basically, there's a lot of ischemic time, but then and, and kidneys are very, very sensitive to ischemia. But what it's really amazing, and the and really again highlights the resuscitation effects of the team is that the brain is preserved. Like it's an unbelievable thing that you're seeing here that, you know, basically again, even after all of this, she is a candidate. She's even a candidate for transplant and then is actually able to undergo transplant. It's just, again, speaks to the blood, sweat and tears and village that went into taking care of this patient. Yeah, exactly, Dan. It really speaks to the coordinated care to get her a transplant in less than a month. But just taking a step back and looking at it from the patient's perspective, I think this must have been a terrifying experience for the patient and her family. She was a healthy person, had one day of symptoms, then found herself deteriorating so much that she needed not just one, but two organs transplanted within a month. And all this during the COVID pandemic, too. Yeah, it was a really, really rapid course. And I think the family was scared when she first came over to Ronald Reagan. On top of her health issues, she's actually a high school Spanish teacher and had recently become the primary breadwinner for her family because her husband lost his job due to the pandemic. Everything going on in their situation was stressful. Yeah, Jay, I'm sure that was really stressful. And it reminds me that in addition to pregnancy, extreme emotional stress and extreme physical stress have actually been identified as a trigger for SCAD in almost two-thirds of cases. I wonder if stress was just the big trigger for her initial SCAD development. There are also case reports of vomiting leading to SCAD as well, but I think, Jay, you said that our patient had chest pain when she was eating, so she wasn't throwing up, so probably it wasn't that. You know, it just goes to show that the triggers for SCAD can be a lot of different things, so you need to take a great history and look really carefully at the angiographic images in the cath lab. As I think we said earlier, you know, our lady's SCAD was very obvious, but for a lot of patients with coronary artery dissections, the findings are really subtle. Yes. And speaking to something that you also said earlier, how, you know, this patient, like, again, totally healthy and just gets chest pain and this whole thing unfolds. I actually saw not, I wouldn't say a similar case, but a patient who was undergoing a EGD. This is a while back, many years ago, but a patient that was getting an EGD, she was in her forties for just a workup for GERD and ended up having VF. And then also an ECG that showed chest elevations anteriorly, had a left main dissection, went to the cath lab, they couldn't fix it, ended up getting bypassed, but was on a balloon pump and unfortunately had complications related to the balloon pump, lost a leg. And so oh, this woman, wow. I, this has actually happened when I was a medical student. It's it's really seared in my mind. I, I think about this yeah. person all the time. I remember her first and last name. And I remember being in the OR, watching the surgery and seeing like the open chest. And then ultimately the next day, the patient had to go for a leg amputation all before she woke up. And, mm-hmm. and then she wakes up, basically, again, she was getting a workup for GERD and then ended up having oh, this, like, just a devastating gosh. consequence. And I actually followed her. I chart followed her for years because I always thought about her. And while she had a different kind of outcome as this patient, she went to rehab and basically really, really worked with what she had. And I obviously never met her again, but I would have loved to meet her and, and hear her story. But it really left an imprint on me. And so, again, severe SCAD it could be really, really, really challenging to manage. You know, like one, what a nightmare, but two also just goes to show you how much strength people can have in the worst of circumstances. 
Yeah, our patient definitely had a lot of strength to get through all of this with everything going on with the COVID pandemic. Thankfully, she lived in a home with great support network. She had two reliable caregivers, her husband and her mother, who were able to help post-transplant. She also had an employer who was really fantastic and accommodating through her hospital stay. So she was able to keep her insurance uh, and was able to financially be okay. Those are all great factors that studies have shown guarantee a good outcome after transplant. It's a huge surgery and it's a huge life change. And we want our patients to have the best support to get them through this adjustment period, help them take their medications and get to and from all of their follow-up appointments. Our transplant team here is very large and has a lot of fantastic social workers who do a great job of really figuring out how we can build an individualized support team for each patient that we transplant. Yeah, transplant is a big deal. I think sometimes we forget how monumental it is because we see so many transplant patients at UCLA. You know, I'm going into advanced heart failure and heart transplant, so I love this stuff, but I think this is probably a great time to maybe remind all the listeners that there's a lot of different reasons that we can actually transplant someone's heart, not just end-stage heart failure. So you can do heart transplants for persistent cardiogenic shock that can't be weaned from inotropes or mechanical circulatory support like our patient. You can transplant for um, true just end-stage heart failure. So New York Heart Association class four heart failure with symptoms that are refractory to optimal medical and surgical therapy, including things like fads. You can transplant for persistent anginal symptoms with coronary disease that just isn't amenable to revascularization. We've transplanted people who've had life-threatening recurrent arrhythmias like VT storm that's unresponsive to all other modes of treatment. And then, you know, we have a big congenital heart center here at UCLA, and we do do transplant for some of these specialized forms of cardiomyopathies and congenital heart diseases. So, you know, luckily for our patient, though, it seems like when she got a new heart, her risk of developing SCAD or her history of developing SCAD in her first heart doesn't put her at any increased risk of developing SCAD in her transplanted heart. So at least that's one less thing to worry about, because I know that a lot of SCAD patients actually have some PTSD after the event, worrying that they're going to have another sort of spontaneous coronary artery dissection in the future. I hope she's been doing well since this crazy month in the hospital. How is she doing, Jay? Yeah, she's had a pretty smooth and pretty uneventful postoperative course since then. You know, the transplanted kidney took a little bit of time to start working after transplant, which just meant that she had a prolonged period of CRRT postoperatively. But she actually was recently discharged from the hospital with normal heart and normal kidney function. It's a really great outcome for what was initially an, a devastating and rare diagnosis. When we looked through the literature, we could only find three or four other case reports of a patient with such significant SCAD that they needed a heart transplant. So this story really is one in a million. I'm so glad we were able to help her. Did you get a chance to see the pathology slides from the explanted heart? I heard they were incredible. Oh man, a picture really, really is worth a thousand words. We have some great images from the explanted heart that are on the CardioNerds website, and I definitely encourage everyone to check those out. But if you're driving, please pull over first, <laughs> okay? <laughs> In case that wasn't clear before, but you do have to check out these images because they are incredible. There's a gross pathology image that shows the infarcted myocardium in the LAD territory. While infarcted myocardium is, of course, not unique to this case or even SCAD in general, it was very fascinating for me to see what a gross specimen looks like after a myocardial infarction. I have personally never seen it before. There's also a great radiograph of the explanted heart showing the extensive stenting that took place all the way from the left main through the distal LAD. And finally, my favorite image is an incredible histopathology image of the LAD in cross-section, 
which shows a gigantic false lumen and a smaller true lumen. And within that false lumen, you can actually see stent strut indentations. Although, this, although the diagnosis of SCAD was clear even after the first shot in the cath lab, seeing this histopathologic image really drove home for me the magnitude of this dissection. You're so right, Jay. Some of my favorite images that I've ever seen in my life are the 3D images of my children in my wife's belly and this image right here. I mean, this is just, <laughs> this is scat wow. in a nutshell. This is amazing. You're such Thank a you. dork. Thank you for sharing. No, no. 1A and 1B. <laughs> well, no, real I mean, cardio right. nerd. No. No, no, no. My, uh, let me rephrase that. The the picture of my kids, my wife's belly, a picture of my wife, and this image. Good save. Nice save. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you definitely need to pull over and take a look at the images now. Yes, I completely agree. You know, another thing that it really highlights is what you're missing on angiography. And I love angiography. Yeah. But remember that when you basically inject the dye, the dye is only going into the lumen that you're injecting into. And so that's why SCAD, we had talked about this on a previous episode, SCAD can be challenging to diagnose. In this case, not so much. It was very, very clear. But sometimes you just see a narrowing of the artery and then it fatten up again. And it could look like spasm or it could even look subtle. And if it's sometimes long enough, your eyes may not even notice it as a problem in, at, to begin with. And so here you appreciate what that means that when you're seeing, you know, just the dye, you could imagine, for example, in this picture that I'm looking at, where if dye were going into the false lumen, you might get impression that that is the actual true lumen by the dye because it would fill up the entire artery, whereas the true lumen is actually squished to the side. It's really a flat. It looks like a, a moon or a thumbnail or something like that. So definitely check out this image and kind of correlate it to the angiography that we saw earlier. You know, and just looking at this image, it's like hair raising, you know, I mean, in retrospect, now that we've recorded and had the discussion, I realized that they, you know, they knew that they were in the false lumen and it was sort of a control re-entry and stenting. But just thinking about what was going on in that moment, you know, the patient is crashing, organs are suffering, and the life of a young, otherwise healthy woman who has children is on the line. And it's just, you know, like the the methodology here, the technique, the level-minded thinking, and the teamwork are all just such a testament to the capabilities of the team, the experience, and the expertise that goes into taking care of a critically ill patient, but being able to essentially use control steps to salvage as much of perfusion as you can. You know, I'm so excited to be an interventional cardiologist and it's just such an um, amazing thing to see how experience and expertise can get you to that level. You know, it's just one thing to love about cardiology. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And, you know, I think that we are really lucky at UCLA to have this team that just functions as a big unit and all kind of help each other out. And those pathology images were incredible. And one of the other things I really love about UCLA is that another member of the care team is our cardiac pathologist, Dr. Fishbein, who he loves to teach and he arranges these monthly sessions for the fellows just to teach them and let them see all these path specimens of patients, cardiac patients who recently had an autopsy or, you know, organs explanted. And he does these combined sessions with the PEDS cardiology group as well. So we get to see everything from tiny little baby hearts right up to huge dilated cardiomyopathies. And he lets us hold the hearts, go over the past slides and discuss the case again. And it really just, like you guys have said, hammers home some of these teaching points and also makes you realize that the learning continues even past the cath lab and into the pathology lab as well. 
Yeah, you're right, Hillary. Those sessions are really priceless and invaluable. I think we're really lucky to have Dr. Fishbein at UCLA. And we also get to do pick heart dissections every year to learn cardiac anatomy, which is always really fun too, to hang out with our fellows. But anyway, I'm glad our patient did well and made it home. Moving forward now, what are some things that you guys counseled the patient on, Jay? One of the biggest things we emphasized to our patient was the importance of eventually being screened for other arteriopathies. Given the strong association between SCAD and fibromuscular dysplasia, it is crucial that patients get imaging of the other large vascular beds to evaluate for silent disease. The other vascular beds most commonly involved include the renals, the cranial vessels, and the iliacs. We also counseled our patient on the importance of cardiac rehab, which will be part of our overall acute rehab after this prolonged hospitalization. There is a high burden of psychological distress among SCAD patients. So proper surveillance going forward is also of the utmost importance to ensure our patient gets the treatment and referrals she needs. There is unfortunately a lot of fear and uncertainty for SCAD patients who really worry about the recurrent cardiac events and other vascular issues in the future. And we want to provide not only medical, but also psychosocial support to the best of our ability. Yeah, this was just a fascinating case, a lot of twists and turns, but you know, I'm so glad that the patient had a happy outcome at the end. I know, like we've said, I think one of the reasons that I love this case is it really highlights the collaborative nature of UCLA, even from the, you know, community hospital or kind of affiliated hospitals to the CT surgery team, the ECMO team, cath lab, the ICU, and then our transplant teams, you know, everyone's really at the top of their game and everyone's input is valued and everyone just pulled together to help the patient. So Hillary, Jay, Ruth, this case embodies so much of what I love about cardiology and really took us from an initial acute emergent presentation where life is on the line, took us through all the multiple teams that are involved in taking care of a patient at a specialized cardiovascular center with a specialized and capable heart team and really put the patient at the center, you know, with her particular circumstances and ended up with a phenomenal outcome. So congratulations for you all in terms of being able to take care of patients in such an incredible way. And so I'd like to ask you guys at this point, what are the reasons you decided to pursue cardiology and what makes your hearts flutter about UCLA? The reason I pursued cardiology, I think, is from even medical school days, just understanding the cardiac physiology. I think it's an answer that a lot of people give for this question, but just something that was so intuitive based on my math and physics background that it made sense. And it was how I applied those things to medicine. And I I just really enjoyed cardiology back from early third year medical school days. Specifically at UCLA, though, I've enjoyed my time so much here. From day one, I've grown both emotionally and intellectually. Becoming a cardiology fellow definitely had a steep learning curve. And I remember early on feeling like I wasn't ready to handle the responsibility. However, our program leadership and our senior fellows made me feel so comfortable that first month. The week-long boot camp to go over procedures and logistics was super clutch. And then we spent several weeks learning the basics of echocardiography. We had backup senior fellows when we were on call, and we were intentionally placed on lighter rotations to study for internal medicine boards, which was actually really nice for our wellness. Once things got more intense, the faculty were patient, thoughtful, and dedicated when it came to teaching us how to do procedures or running the CCU. They made it possible to deliver both effective care and help us gain experience. Our clinical training is spread over four different hospitals, and with that comes an exponential increase in the complexity and diversity of patients we see on a daily basis. From bleeders in Chagas cardiomyopathy at our county hospital, to cath lab legends at our VA, 
to preeminent adult congenital attendings at our university hospital, we really are privileged to be here learning under their tutelage. Lastly, and most importantly, I love this program because of the people. My co-fellows and program leadership are some of the kindest people I know. There is no shortage of people willing to step up and fill in if you have an emergency. There's no shortage of people willing to give you valuable life advice, whether it be about raising a puppy or negotiating your first attending salary. The greatest comfort training here is knowing I can text any attending or co-fellow about something medical or non-medical and get a genuinely insightful response. Yeah, Jay, I really agree with everything you say. And, you know, for me, I chose to do cardiology because I really just enjoyed the physiology with it. I actually went into medicine and went into residency thinking that I was going to be a primary care physician. It wasn't until I was an intern on CCU that I was like, wow, following hemodynamics is so cool and just really exciting. But I fought the idea of going into cardiology because I felt like I had defined this path of primary care for so long. But ultimately, when I was a third-year resident, I decided to do cardiology. So for those listeners who are still on the cusp, it's definitely okay to take time to think about you know, what makes your heart flutter, like Amit says. And I hope you do choose cardiology because it's really amazing. And I hope you also consider applying to UCLA because there's two reasons that I love this program. And one is the breadth of the training and two is the people. Having four training sites was really important to me because I wanted variety, not just in the patient population, but also styles of practice. So at UCLA, you encounter four different sets of attendings within each cardiology specialty, and that really helps hone your skills and provide you with lifelong resources. It's also very helpful for the future, too, because you'll be more versatile being exposed to a comprehensive set of healthcare systems, and you get an idea of what type of setting you would like to practice in. And the second reason is the people. I think the educational environment here is so supportive and collaborative. If I have a question or just can't get my brain to understand a concept like all those esoteric echo board studying questions I have right now, all the attendings here will pause, sit down, and talk you through it. And I think that type of collegial and engaging environment is so important when you're training to feel comfortable to ask questions and to feel prioritized in this hectic world of cardiology training. And like I said earlier, I have a toddler. So my two and a half year old girl, I started fellowship when she was still an infant and my co-fellows have been nothing but supportive. They quickly jumped to cover me when daycare calls with emergencies. Sometimes daycare even calls during Zoom calls and, you know, everyone's just jumping to help out and make me feel really supported. They cook us homemade meals and they make me feel like I'm doing it well as a mother and a cardiologist, even though my internal imposter syndrome is very strong. I think you're doing a great job, Ruth. Thank you, Hillary. The attendings here are also amazing as well. In addition to being master clinicians, they're also life mentors. Dr. Lurie, Kapoor, Dr. Yang, Dr. Wang, Dr. Kamath, Coppola, Shapiro, Bojabasic, everyone, Dr. Watson, especially our program director, they have shared with me so much of their wisdom, not just on cardiology, but also childcare options, how to manage work-life balance, and how to you know family build and career build at the same time. So this is hands down one of the most supportive and balanced program. My daughter knows who I am, and I don't feel like I've missed her major milestones at all. I agree with everything you guys said. I also have loved UCLA, you know, and I've been here since intern year. So I did residency here as well. 
And back in the day, I actually thought when I was in med school for a moment, I thought I was going to be a surgeon. I did a CT surgery rotation. It was like, this is it. This is where I'm going. I love procedures and I love crit care and kind of acute care and that adrenaline rush. And I think I realized that for me, cardiology was the perfect mix. Really in cardiology, you can do anything. You can be a proceduralist and be doing these sort of like minimally invasive surgeries in the cath lab. You can, if you want to be in clinic all the time, be a, you know, an outpatient, non-invasive cardiologist. You can do your own imaging. And I just loved that like breadth of options of what I can do. And I'm really excited to go into heart failure and heart transplant and, you know, be running a CCU someday and getting procedures there and also seeing patients in clinic and still having that nice longitudinal relationship. I think UCLA has been really formative in helping me figure out what I want to do. And I have just loved fellowship here. I don't know about you guys, but when I'm, before I started fellowship, I was just convinced that this was going to be some sort of three-year hazing process, you know, like maybe I watched too much Grey's Anatomy or something, but it has actually been some of the best and happiest years of my life. And the training is fantastic. And I think over my three years, I've fallen in love with just about every cardiac subspecialty. We have Dr. Greg Fonero teaching us about guideline-directed medical care and advanced heart failure. Dr. Shiv Kumar, who's actually now the editor-in-chief for Jackie P., who comes in and sits down and is the one teaching us about VT and EP lab procedures. We have one of the best and oldest adult congenital heart disease programs in the country here with Jamil Abelhosen, who's always happy to talk about his super complex procedures. We have specialists in cardio-oncology, cardio-obstetrics, advanced imaging, and world-class preventive cardiology and lipidology with Dr. Carol Watson. And as you guys have probably heard today, our cath lab definitely never has a dull day. You know, but even though we have this incredible collection of really smart and famous attendings teaching us, we're actually given a lot of autonomy to make big decisions and care for our patients, which is something that I love and it's a way that I learn. But I've really never felt unsupported. We have the cell phone numbers of just about every attending in the program, and we call all of our, you know, famous cardiology attendings by their first names, which was a huge shock for me after spending 12 years on the East Coast. I've definitely called my CCU attending at two or three in the morning when I needed help with a tough case or a decompensating patient. But no matter what time I wake them up, the attendings are always available. They're always happy to help and they are totally supportive. And then finally, just like what Ruth and Jay have said, I think the culture of this program and the people we work with really just makes it such a gem of a place. The emphasis here is on being, yeah, a good cardiologist, but also just being a good, well-rounded person. And we are encouraged every day to be efficient with our work and then just go home and be with our families, go to the beach, or just make time to do whatever it is that we need to do to refill our cups, recharge, and be happy. I think people are really happy here, and I think it shows in both our great patient outcomes and also the lifelong friendships we make. Oh, my gosh. Hillary, Ruth, Jay, this has been nothing but... A pleasure, a pleasure. I mean, as we talked about the case, our bonfire grew stronger. It was almost like <laughs> we were fueling it on pure cardiology greatness. And then as you talked about UCLA and all of your, just uh, how collegial it is and the way you reflected on your mentors is just uh we had to like really back away from this fire. So thanks for joining us. This was an amazing chill sesh, I will say. And I can't wait to meet you guys in person. You guys are just fantastic. Thank you guys so much for having us. We've really enjoyed this and we're happy to have you guys out in LA anytime. Maybe in winter. You should come in winter because our winters are probably better than yours, I think. Uh, that is a deep right. <laughs> Stay competitive. <laughs> the weather's more temperate in winter here. Yeah. All right, everyone. I hope you guys enjoyed our case. And now we have an eCPR segment with Dr. Jonathan Tobis. Dr. Tobis is one of our interventional cardiologists who's pioneered a lot of 
procedures and technology and interventional cardiology. So we're really grateful for his time and his expert discussion. Hello, my name is Jonathan Tobis. I am the professor of medicine and cardiology at UCLA and the emeritus director of interventional cardiology. I very much enjoyed the case presentation and the enthusiasm of the fellows involved in the case and in the podcast. In the same format of presentation, I guess I'm a PGY 47. The presenters covered most of the important issues of uh, spontaneous coronary artery dissection, and I'll add a few comments from my experience of treating these patients uh, in the cath lab. When a person presents with this, uh, you have to consider the diagnosis, and especially in a young person and women who have low risk of coronary artery disease, who present with a STEMI or non-STEMI. The differential diagnosis, of course, is atherosclerosis. But in this population, you also have to consider other unusual causes of myocardial infarction, such as paradoxical embolism. So I will often ask if there's a history of migraine with aura prior to the catheterization because 50% of people who have migraine with aura have a patent foramen ovale, which could be the pathway for the paradoxical embolism to the coronaries. Coronary artery spasm is another consideration. You really cannot distinguish angiographically. It's rare that you see uh, double tracks of uh, dissection. And most of the time, it's just that you see narrowed arteries, usually in a more diffuse kind of presentation, but uh, it's very difficult to distinguish that from atherosclerosis, except for the setting that it's a younger person without risk factors or a woman. I often give nitroglycerin intracoronary before uh, I do any intervention to rule out coronary artery spasm. Intravascular ultrasound can also be helpful in this uh, situation. You have to be careful about uh, strong injections or making too many intracoronary injections because you can extend the dissection. I prefer to do SCAD patients from the femoral artery because you have better backup, you're more coaxial to the artery and less likely to cause a dissection of the left main compared with radial artery approach. If you're thinking of SCAD, then I would recommend you get a CT angiogram first because it's safer and actually is better at making the diagnosis because you can see the the false lumen and the true lumen better than with a direct coronary angiogram. In terms of treatment, this has been mentioned in the podcast, uh, conservative treatment is uh, preferable if the patient is stable, especially since the risk of stenting the false lumen is high, as happened in this case. The true lumen tends to collapse because it is composed of both the intima and the media, and the muscular component of the media contracts when it's separated from the adventitia. The contrast passes predominantly in the uh, false lumen, so you can be fooled by the angiogram. The surgery is um, similarly very difficult, and it is unlikely for the surgeon to find the true lumen for the insertion of the graft, and it doesn't ensure that there will be complete uh, anti-grade and retrograde uh, flow. My experience when we've had cases that we discuss with the surgeons, they have been very reluctant to take these patients to surgery, 
and ask us to perform uh, coronary angioplasty instead, which is an indication whenever a surgeon tells the cardiologist to do the case, that tells you that they are very reluctant and that they don't get good results with this. I perform PCI only if the patient is unstable or has a large infarct. And uh, after make the diagnosis and try and get a wire down the artery, I use intravascular ultrasound. That's the best way of determining if you're on the true lumen or false lumen. When you're doing PCI, you have to be very, very careful because balloon dilatation can extend the dissection from compressing the blood in the false lumen. So we don't pre-dilate. It's not necessary. These are very uh, compressible uh, arteries. It's not like uh, sclerotic calcified arteries. And you don't want to extend the blood in the false lumen and extend the dissection. I usually stent uh, both proximal and distal ends first, and then the sections in between to prevent that extension of dissection. You have to be cautious when you're stenting the proximal LAD or proximal circumflex that it doesn't extend the dissection retrograde into the other vessel in the left main, as happened in this case. When the case is finished, I perform body CT looking for fibromuscular dysplasia, as they described in the podcast. These are challenging patients in the cath lab, as well as just management, as was demonstrated in this very difficult case. But if you are able to get to the patient quickly and open up the artery, you can reestablish blood flow and have very successful results, which are very rewarding with coronary angioplasty. Thank you. And now I'd like to introduce an eCPR segment by Dr. Carol Watson, who is one of our women's health cardiologists and also our beloved program director who has our back and teaches us so much and supports us in everything we do. What a great case that was. Thank you so much, Jay, Ruth, and Hillary. You know, 10 years ago, we almost never heard of SCAD, but it's probably much more common than we ever recognized. We now know it's seen in as many as 34% of women under the age of 50, women just like this patient. What we know is that SCAD is the majority of pregnancy-associated myocardial infarctions as well. So the more you look for it, the more you see it. And it's something we always have to have a high index of suspicion for in the right patient population. Just as you guys mentioned, we really want to treat SCAD medically. There's so many risks in intervening, just as you said. It's real easy to wire the false lumen just like it is the true lumen. And again, propagating the dissection is what we absolutely don't want to do. But of course, as you say, there are instances where you have to. Can you guys think of a worse location to have SCAD than where this poor patient had her SCAD? The good news is, you know, there are so many advanced therapeutics that we have available to us in cardiology that eventually, I mean, if you absolutely have to, we can go to transplant. And that's where this case unfortunately ended up. But on the other hand, it's actually quite fortunate that this was available to this patient. There's a lot of things that we also have to think about. We're just learning about the pathophysiology of SCAD. We're learning about 
the overall vasculopathy that this represents. It's not just an isolated dissection in one part of the arterial tree. Where there's an abnormal vessel one place, there's probably a number of abnormal segments as well. So we know that SCAD is associated with fibromuscular dysplasia throughout the body. We have a lot of SCAD patients at UCLA, and we routinely pan scan all of them. And you would be shocked at how many vascular abnormalities I find. There's a lot of FMD, not just in the renal arteries, in the carotid arteries and other vulnerable arteries. There are aneurysms. There are other what look like healed dissections that we see. So I think it's important to have a high index of suspicion for a lot of vascular abnormalities when you see a patient with SCAD. Now, that brings me to the patient population and the things we see at UCLA. We're very fortunate to be a catchment hospital for so many outlying areas. We see all of the interesting cases. We see first presentations of many cases. We see many esoteric cases. We see the quaternary tertiary care patients. So we're very lucky. And our cardiology fellowship really is focused and designed on training the future leaders in cardiology. We want to train leaders in the basic practice of cardiology, leaders in research, both basic and clinical research. We want to train leaders in health policy and standards that govern our field of cardiology. So that's what we've set out to do with our cardiology fellowship program. All of our fellows are exposed to research, all of them and they do great work. We had 37 peer-reviewed publications from our fellows last year. And those who really want to make research the primary component of their career have the STAR Fellowship available to them. STAR's Fellowship is a unique program where we combine advanced training in research leading to a PhD with clinical training in cardiology. It's one of the only programs like this in the country. It's not just an MD-PhD type of program. It's a program there where we fully support you in developing your own research career. We support you with funding fully throughout. There's no need to get your own grants, but many of our fellows do. Again, the goal of this fellowship is to train the leaders in cardiology. We have two different tracks. We have a clinical track. That's a three-year program. We accept about seven or eight fellows in that track per year. Then the Star Trek that I just mentioned, we accept two to three fellows per year in that program. But all of these programs will all trade you to be excellent clinical cardiologists with a background in research. Some people choose to focus on research. Some choose to focus on quality, clinical care, et cetera. But whatever your choice is, we plan to make you the best you can be. Now, just to let you know, we practice what we preach. Our recent graduates have become real leaders in the field at really young ages. In the last two years, we have a recent graduate who is a leader in the ACC Sports and Exercise Cardiology section, one who's a leader in the ACC Women in Cardiology section. One of our recent graduates currently sits on the ACC AHA Data Standards Committee. So again, we have practice what we preach is exactly what we hope to see is exactly what our fellows do. We also have a very strong peer mentoring program at UCLA called the House of Cards. This is a program where every single fellow is assigned to a house when they start a program. 
Every house includes a faculty mentor, a third year, a second year, and a first year fellow. So from day one, you have a built-in support system. There's never someone who can't find someone who they can contact about anything, whether it be a critical patient in the CCU or the best childcare they can find or just, you know, where you can get the best pizza. The other thing that we're really, really proud of is what our fellows do in terms of teaching. Our fellows truly are the heart and soul of our division. Each of the last three years, our fellows have swept the fellow teaching awards. They're just so good at it because they love it. And that's one thing that we cultivate in our fellowship. We're very proud of our fellow and their accomplishments. Our fellows won the California ACC Jeopardy Championship in 2019 and 2020, and we're currently the second place winners of the National Jeopardy Championship in 2019. Unfortunately, the 2020 competition was canceled. But we really do have a great fellowship. It's the heart and soul of our division. There's a very close alliance between fellows and faculty and staff and everyone. So we sure hope you'll consider our fellowship. We'd love to meet and mentor the next generation of cardiology leaders. Thank you. Wow, what an amazing case. A huge thanks to the fellows and faculty for enriching us with yet another terrific discussion and incredible addition to the CardiNerds Case Report series. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the case media available for review, key take-home and discussion points, and links to the program. If you'd like the educational takeaways and graphics delivered directly to your email, sign up for The Heartbeat, the CardiNerds newsletter. You can join the email list using a link in the episode description, as well as from our website, www.cardinerds.com. We thank the ACC Fit section chaired by Dr. Noshin Riza for their support and collaboration. And a very special thanks to our incredible production team for elevating our platform. Colin Blumenthal, Tommy Das, Eunice Dugan, Rick Ferraro, Avalyn Song, and Bibin Burgis are all internal medicine residents at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, as well as their phenomenal med-ed mentor and University of Maryland cardiology fellow, Karan Desai. If you love the show as much as we do, be sure to spread the word, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast platform, and consider becoming a patron of the show on Patreon. All right, that's a wrap. Time to make like an S2 and split. You didn't tell them about the bees. That's, that's a, yeah, that's a, a whole, I can't, I'm traumatized. I'll talk about it later. Let's, let's get started. <laughs> never with mind. Never mind. Guys, don't no bees step in on the a beehive. Just don't step on a beehive and then <laughs> jump in your van after because the bees will chase you into the van and then that's worse. So. Oh my God. Let's move on. That's, that's the first pearl of the day. Stay away from bees. <laughs>